This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome to the Chase Thomas podcast. My name is Chase Thomas, and I am joined this evening by Cameron Wolf, ESPN NFL reporter that I've been reading for years. I remember him on the Bengals beat, and now he is on the Miami Dolphins beat. Cameron, good evening. How are you, sir? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. You have a good name. Cameron Wolf is a very badass name. I'm just going to go ahead and lead off with that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It's worked well for me. <laughs> it's yeah. good. Wolf is just a really cool last name. The Cameron Wolf, I don't know. I, I could, It works. I, I'm a fan. Yeah. I appreciate it. My mom gave it to me, but uh, it works for me in TV, so I guess it works. It's, I'll stick with it. All right. Um, so you're speeding down the Miami Expressway. I'm not even going to pretend to know what... I've been to Miami once, and I, I don't remember any roads or anything like that. So I don't even know um, if you're on like the whatever the 85 equivalent or the 405 or anything else. Are, is, it a, um, is, it, uh, is it a dangerous situation right now? Oh, no, no. I'm driving back from Orlando, so it's a straightaway down, uh, down south to Miami. So it's okay. a uh, pretty straightforward move. Two hundred two hundred miles down uh, down the highway, down the turnpike, quarter time turnpike. How tough was it for you to leave Cincinnati uh, for Miami? Uh, I was actually in Tennessee. I was actually oh, Tennessee, Tennessee. That's right. You before. went from Cincinnati to Tennessee to Miami. I went from Denver to Tennessee to Miami. I wasn't was in Cincinnati. This? Oh, you were a Cincinnati reporter at some point, right? No, no, the, uh, Coley Harvey was a Cincinnati reporter. Maybe, oh, I'm misremembering. Okay, now, okay, yes, that makes, okay, that makes more sense. The ESPN NFL yeah. Nation reporters, okay, I got it. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so now you're on the Miami beat, and um, Miami is going through a lot of changes this offseason. Um, it's it's fascinating because ultimately they were one of those teams that had to wait out uh, the playoffs to end the Bengals being the other team was Zach Taylor, but Brian Flores is someone who I remember reading Ian O'Connor's piece on ESPN, your colleague a year ago yeah. who yeah. wrote really this good really, 
Yeah, an amazing piece on Brian Flores and growing up in New York City and um, just what he dealt with and how he came into football and um, just kind of his just his story was compelling. And he is a very easy to root for guy, especially in that's no small feat coming from the Belichick uh, coaching tree, because it seems like every <laughs> underling of Belichick is not someone that's easy to root for. But Flores right. is... 100 percent someone you're like oh god i hope this works out yeah yeah absolutely i think he, he's a unique uh guy and i think everybody i've talked to about him uh that's been a common denominator that hey this guy is authentic this guy is not you know your normal belichick branch of the tree you know whether that means he's successful or not we don't know yet but he's not you know he's not gonna be a clone of what uh, Belichick has been. He's got his own upbringing. He's got his own past uh, that shaped him. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's a pleasant surprise uh, for, for Dolphins fans that, hey, you know, you're going to get someone that has the, the Patriots success but may not be as rigid in the personality that Bill Belichick and a lot of their assistants have come to, ha- come to have over the last, you know, decade or two. So do you think ultimately what you're seeing so far, he is a pretty different guy than Belichick or do you, did you get a lot of like Belichickian senses um, so far when you, when he first uh, got introduced to the press? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix. Like obviously he's been in New England since 2004. So a lot of what he's learned, a lot of his principles, a lot of, you know, how he coaches is from the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick. So I think that he'll try to implement a lot of Patriots way of, of coaching as far as, you know, um, you know, making sure the team is more important than players and, 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 you know, trying to do those sort of elements that Belichick may have made, you know, popular, the whole flexible and multiple offensive and defensive formation. Um, I think he'll bring a lot of those elements, but as far as his personality and how he deals with players, I don't imagine he's going to be like Belichick in that realm. I don't think he's going to, you know, be a stone wall. I think he's going to be open. I think he's going to be accessible. And I think he's going to be someone that players want to play for, not out of fear or not out of, you know, respect of his winning, but just because they truly like the guy and what uh, what he's selling to the team. So I think that's a, that's a big winning principle for him. And that's something that may make him different than Belichick, who, who may have had his prestige of, of winning and his prestige of the Patriot culture uh, you know, uh, convince people to, to play for him more than anything else. It certainly seems like Chris Greer, who also came from the Pats years ago, um, he came up in their system. Uh, yeah. It feels like this is finally the kind of continuity um, that an organization really needs and a continuity that if you're a fan of a team like the Dolphins, this is something to really um, sink your teeth into because it's really frustrating when there is an obvious disconnect between the general manager and the front office and the coaching staff and the players and everything else. Now with Chris Greer getting Brian Flores, do you think this is something where it's like, okay, now Chris Greer, we've liked him for years. You had the tandem ball and weird stuff, but now he's got, uh, he got put <laughs> pushed away. He got a new senior <laughs> title and pushed away. Yeah. And this is now Greer's show. And then he got his guy. And now we have Reggie McKenzie, who I'm going to ask you about a little bit, but do you think it finally starts it, it, like the Dolphins are finally starting to feel like a a team and a group and an organization that just kind of makes sense from top to bottom? Yeah, I, I think we've seen a really good early sign. Um, 
you know, the Dolphins have been sort of mired in mediocrity over the last decade. So I know for, for Dolphins fans, there's a lot of, you know, cautious optimism. You don't want to get too high because you've been disappointed for so long. But I'll say this, you know, for the last few years, it felt like the Dolphins had about seven chefs in, in the kitchen trying to make, you know, a peanut butter jelly sandwich. And now, you know, there's there's a, a more of a clear hierarchy. There's, uh, you know, Chris Greer is the the end-all, be-all of football decision-making powers. There's not too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, and owner Stephen Ross has sort of took his hand off of the pie and kind of, you know, let Chris Greer make the decision. So I think that's something that's strong uh, for the Dolphins organization and, and for fans to look for that, hey, we've got somebody who's truly accountable and truly, uh, you know, has a clean slate and building this thing. So I think Chris Greer has been a really strong talent evaluator. I think he's brought in some really good pieces with Marvin Allen, uh, like you mentioned, Reggie McKenzie. And, you know, they're, let's be real, they're going through a rebuild. This team is preparing to be bad uh, over the next year or two to, to hopefully eventually be good. So they're going to be judged on how they rebuild this roster, what key pieces they bring in, and, you know, ultimately finding that quarterback is, is something that's going to define the tenure of Chris Greer and Brian Flores in Miami. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things, too, I think that's come out in the last couple of days about this uh, coaching staff for the Dolphins is that Flores is not going to call the plays on defense. And that right. seemed kind of interesting for someone as young as Flores. I think he's like 37. Um, yeah. You would think starting out, you'd want to call plays and then you'd like kind of as you get older, like the Zimmer stuff where it's like you waited for a while and then he called plays in Minnesota. And then I think he passed it down to George Edwards. And I think he calls plays again now. But um, you 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 kind of think that like Flores would want to. Or were you at all surprised that he is not uh, going to be the defensive play caller in year one? Uh uh, not shocked. I, I thought that there was a chance he could just because he only had one year of play calling responsibilities in New England. And a lot right. of times guys will like to, 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 to have a longer experience in that realm, just sort of out of personal, you know, obligation. And then also mm-hmm. it, it's, it's the first gig. So I thought there, you know, there were that definitely be an affinity for him to have more control on the ship. But I, I think I talked to him off to the side after his press conference a couple of weeks ago and one thing he told me was that he learned a lot from Scott Pioli in Kansas City. And one of the, you know, uh, uh, Scott Pioli, when they were together in New England, he's now at, I think he's in Kansas City. He's in uh, Atlanta. He's, he's the assistant the, GM in there. Atlanta. You're yes. right. You're right. He's in Atlanta. So he was one of, one of uh, Brian Flores' mentors, and he told him the importance of delegating. Because once you go from the number two, two jobs to the number one job, so many things come upon your plate. You know, no mm-hmm. longer is it just about coaching football. It's about, you know, how long should we cut the grass? You know, uh, what time should we leave uh, for our road trip on Saturday? You know, what what color should the walls be painted in a team facility? All these things that, that don't matter in the grand scheme of things now become a number one principle for a head coach. So he said that it was really important for him to delegate things that ultimately he thought, you know, were head coach responsibilities. And play calling might be one of them. You know, he hired a guy in Patrick Graham who he worked with in New England for, in New England, uh, for a number of years. He's one of his closest friends, so he's probably a guy that he trusts. And uh, he feels like, man, I could be the CEO of this team uh, a lot better if I'm not calling plays. So um, I think that there probably will be a, you know, a, a 
a, a huge influence that Brian Flores will have on game plans and play calling. And I'm sure he'll have veto power. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are some games where, you know, things aren't going well. Maybe he takes over the headset a little bit. Uh, but I think that, it, you know, his ability to delegate and give responsibilities to others uh, is a good sign for a first-year head coach because not many not many of them, you know, have the ability or the willingness uh, to, to hand out others, you know, key tasks. Especially because of who has come into the league as head coaches recently. Cliff Kingsbury, Sean McVay, Shanahan. Right. All the offensive coaches, there's no question they're calling plays. Like, that's part yeah. of the appeal of getting them is, like, they're going to be the offensive play car. There's like, this is the thing you like, they're taking this job so that they can run their own offense, run their own schemes and all that kind of stuff. And um, this is kind of a different spin on it with defense where they got the young hotshot, young defensive mind. And he isn't doing that. The thing to remember about Flores is in high school and just growing up, he played both sides of the ball. Like he is not someone who just has this primary uh, defensive background. Like it it actually kind of makes, yeah. He's coached on offense and special teams as well. He actually started his yeah. career as a scout. So he's he's pretty diverse in his knowledge of football and his, his spectrum. So I think that's a good point. Yeah, so um, we'll see what goes on there. But I feel like the biggest thing in this, it, it feels kind of um, – it, it feels kind of lazy to just point this out, but I think it's it's true. It's just uh, Tannehill is not going to be the quarterback there anymore, and Flores' tenure in Miami is going to be defined by who they end up getting at quarterback and who, uh, if he's ever able to find one, because the clock is ticking immediately, especially in a league where team off everybody's hiring an offensive uh, mastermind and the Dolphins went a different way. Like There's more pressure on somebody like Flores because – what do we just see in Arizona this past year? Like yep, that is something yep, you have to think Wilkes. about. Steve Wilkes, he had a raw deal. Like it was a historically bad offense, and that's the reason he got fired. Like the defense wasn't that bad in Arizona this past year. I think they were like 15th in defensive DVOA. Like it was a little bit worse than right. a year ago, but they lost a lot of talent. Like they've had a lot of roster turnover and everything else, but that offense was just a dumpster fire. And when you take a quarterback in the first round and you invest all these resources into him, uh, that's a problem and that I don't think he got a fair shake in Arizona, but you have to think about these defensive minded coaches, especially the younger ones where it's like Flores, his offense, like he's going to have a new quarterback. He's going to have um, some interesting questions surrounding the wide receiver group, but right. like this offense can't be historically bad or pressure yeah. will be on them immediately. And yeah. um, I, I think that's kind of fascinating going into year one. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really good point. I think that's something that I'm interested in uh, because, like you mentioned, you mentioned Steve Wilkes, but even I think Vance Joseph as well. You know, a guy who yeah. got two years. You know, he he's he's out. You know, uh, after two years, he's another defensive minded coach, first time head coach. So yeah, I'm sure Brian Flores of the, the coaching fraternity. They're all minority coaches, so I'm sure that coaching fraternity they talk, they have conversations, um, and I'm sure that some of that some of that scared them. But I think that's probably a key reason of why he got that five-year guaranteed contract. He was the only coach hired in the cycle to get that five-year guarantee. And, you know, the owner, Stephen Ross, has, has talked a lot about patience and building this thing the right way. Uh, and my biggest question that ultimately only Ross can answer is that, you know, how true do he, does he say that? You know, like you mentioned, if the offense is terrible, if tickets start to go, you know, go away, you know, fans don't support the team, and you're two years in, three and thirteen, and four and twelve. Are you still willing to, to go through your patience and 
your plan and your rebuild, you know, and only he knows that answer. You'd hope, you'd hope your coach gets more than two years, no matter what happened. Uh, but we don't know in this league. And, you know, we've seen in the past where there's been surprise firing in the past. So uh, I think the Dolphins owe it to Flores. They owe it to Greer to see this thing through, give it at least three years. And, and hopefully they build this team uh, into something that's different than what we've seen over the last decade, which has been, you know, just being good enough to be in a conversation, but not good enough to, to be, to have any significant splash uh, on being a contender. I just think you got to look at like, I think in week 11 this fall, and if Miami's like 29th in offensive DVOA, I'm going to be interested to see what the scuttlebutt is coming out. I'm going to be interested in reading your pieces about it because I think you're going to have some interesting takes and some interesting insight into this because I think it will be interesting to see how this team react but depending on what they do at quarterback and there's a quarterback that they are uh the betting odds favorite to get um that i want to touch on in a second but um there's something about reggie mckenzie i wanted to mention before we forget is i i loved reggie mckenzie in oakland i thought he did a really great job there uh it ultimately it he i think he also got a raw deal and <laughs> we'll see what happens with john Green with these three first round picks and everything because Although Rachel McKenzie wasn't perfect, he got off a lot of bad contracts. He drafted Cleo Mack. Like, he had one of the best drafts ever a couple of years ago, right. and he got Carr, Cooper, Mack, and everybody. And, and you know, it, it, Gruden wants to be his own guy. He got his, uh, he hired his own guy in Mike Mayock and everything else. He's running the show there, whatever. But McKenzie now in that group with, because, like, I was never a big Tannenbaum guy. That just felt like right. he was friends with the right person, and he's just like, how does this dude keep getting jobs, especially at, with how the Jets stuff ended. Um, but now you have him in this role and you talk about Mar- uh, Allen as well. And you're like, Oh, interesting. But I'm more fascinated because Greer just got this promotion essentially. And then he's bringing in McKinsey. How does this dynamic work? Does McKinsey, you wrote about this. It, does he have a really strong voice? Does he have final say? Does he have, is this how, how does this all work? So, so Chris Greer will have final say, and he's going to be the number one. And, uh, I, I'd even say that Marvin Allen will probably be the number two. I think what Reggie McKinley's role will be, and I think this will be important, is that, like you mentioned, he helped rebuild that Raiders team. I think they were 4-12, and 12, and they became you know 12-4 and four two years later. So I think he's going to be a really important voice in a rebuild era. And trying to he's going to bring a lot of principles of what he did in Oakland and try to duplicate those in Miami. I think that he'll probably have a, a significant role in, in helping you know, with, with contract and figuring out things like that. That one thing that Tannenbaum did do that Greer doesn't have a lot of experience in is the, the salary cap and negotiating contract. So they have a uh, they have a VP of administration, Brandon Shore, who's going to handle a lot of that work. But I wouldn't be surprised to see Reggie McKenzie have a hand in some of that work as well. Um, and, and obviously he'll give input on different things, like, you know, involving the draft or free agency or stuff like that. But it, it's still Chris Greer's show. I don't think Reggie McKenzie is a threat to Chris Greer as far as power or anything like that. I think that Chris Greer saw it as an opportunity to, to bring in a guy that he respects and a guy who has a lot of insight about how to turn a, a program around. So I don't think that uh, you know th- this is a situation where Reggie McKenzie becomes the Mike Tannenbaum of old. I think this is just a guy who's you know at first and foremost, first and foremost, is going to be an advisor for Chris Greer. But then also we'll, we'll be able to help maybe in areas where the Dolphins front office currently may have a dirt. 
Um, so I think that's where he steps in, particularly coming off a, a Raiders GM gig where, you know, he's still getting some checks for them. So I, I think that, you know, maybe he eventually gets back in the GM role with another team. But this is a nice, uh, this is a nice buffer job for him over the next year or two to, to get it, get himself back in order and get his career back on track, but also help the Dolphins uh, hopefully rebuild them in, 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 a, in a way that the Raiders did. Yeah, um, it can. It never hurts to have too many smart NFL people in your front office. I don't right, think, as, right. as long as they're all on the same page. And even if they're not, sometimes it's nice just to have. Like, if you're a fan, you're like, okay, I like everybody in this front office, and it's a collaborative effort. And Greer just it, he's not going to be overwhelmed because he's a lot of smart people in the room with him. Um, I, I don't see how that's a negative as long as the roles are kind of defined and they kind of know where things are going. But um, let's talk about the offense for a second. O'Shea. He is going to be, he was the wide receivers coach in New England. Uh, he's going to be calling plays for the Dolphins. But then they also brought in Jim Caldwell as yeah. the QB coach, assistant head coach. And um, I don't know about you, but I just didn't feel like uh, the Jim Caldwell uh, coached offenses were all that similar to the New England uh, coached offenses. But then again, you think about like when he got uh, promoted to OC um right after who was the uh, the offensive coordinator got fired oh cam cameron and then they promoted yeah. caldwell and the ravens went on the run and won the super bowl um do you think there is a, like do you think they brought in caldwell just in case of like a fallback option if o'shea does not work out as a play caller right away and they had this other guy on staff already who was called plays before been a head coach all that kind of stuff um can help brian flores navigate um being a head coach in the nfl today all that kind of stuff, or do you think it's just kind of like Reggie McKenzie, where it just doesn't hurt to have more uh, professionals that know what they're doing, that have a track record, um, have a lot of experience, and can help somebody like O'Shea um, call plays uh, for the first time in his NFL career? I think it's sort of twofold. I look at it one, one, uh, two ways. One, I look at it as you know, you've got a first-time head coach, a first-time offensive coordinator, and a first-time defense coordinator. Um, no matter who you are, no matter how talented those coaches are, they're going to have some ups and downs. They're going to have some cycles where things surprise them and they're going to be overwhelmed. So I think Jim Caldwell provides, you know, as a head coach filter and as an offensive coordinator filter, someone who has been there, done that, and can provide advice for, for both parties. So I think that he's a great hire because of, of that. He can play that dual purpose for both Brian Flores and Chad O'Shea. I think that he has been, you know, he's, he's a well-respected guy, and I think he's a guy that, you know, won't cross any boundaries with Chad O'Shea. He's going to let Chad O'Shea be the guy. But I think the second part of it is that he has had a lot of success with quarterbacks. And like we've mentioned already on this podcast, that, hey, you know, the Dolphins are going to have to be in the market for a quarterback, probably a young quarterback, and who better to shape, you know, that type of quarterback then a guy like Jim Caldwell who's worked, you know, with Joe Flacco, helped him lead, lead him to a Super Bowl. Uh, helped Peyton Manning uh, win a Super Bowl in Indianapolis. Uh, had helped Matthew Stafford some some of his best best seasons. So I think you've got a guy who is going to be able to, you know, be a veteran voice for, you know, your three arguably most important people um, in your organization, and your, your head coach, your offensive coordinator, and your quarterback. Um, and I think that's invaluable. Um, I'm not sure, you know, if he eventually becomes another head coach in the next year or two. I know he had, you know, some some interest this year, but I think for now he's a great voice 
and a great medium for those, uh, like I said, three key uh, roles in the organization and head coach, offensive coordinator, and quarterback. Well, Matt Patricia is just killing it in uh, Detroit. So I think, uh, <laughs> they made a great decision hiring Bob Quinn's buddy there. Um, one of the last things I want to touch on with this Dolphins team, uh, this is kind of, they go hand in hand, but outside of the quarterback spot, what else are you looking for them to do to address? What What are some major needs you're looking at this roster? And you're like, I think this is where Flores and Greer are going to look to upgrade and to really kind of bolster um, this this roster going forward? Well, first, even before they upgrade, I'm interested to see how much they tear down this roster. Mm, uh, yeah. I think there will be some tear down. Um, they have a lot of high-priced veterans. They have a lot of guys who are going to be due contract zone. Uh, and I think there's a, this, this offseason will be intriguing to see how long their timetable is for the rebuild. And we'll be able to tell pretty quickly based on the decisions. Their biggest free agent coming up is Jawan uh, James, their right tackle. He may be the top right tackle on the market if he is free agency. And uh, I've had conversations with him over the last couple of months, and he plans on his free agency. Uh, but if the Dolphins believe they're rebuilding, then it, it probably doesn't make sense to, to re-sign him at you know, 8, 9, maybe $10 million a year. Um, so they could be losing the right tackle, and that opens up another big hole in their roster. Um, there's going to be conversation around Xavier Howard, who wants the big extension. He's probably their best player on the team coming off the Pro Bowl season, their long Pro Bowler, um, seven interceptions. But, you know, there's been some trade rumblings. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a story, story earlier this offseason that, you know, Xavier Howard hears the trade rumblings. And he, he said, he, you know, he's hurt. He's tried not to let it bother him. Um, but, you know, he's prepared for whatever happens. So he wants to be the highest paid cornerback in the NFL. Um, that's Josh Norman money. That's about $15 million a year. Um, do the Dolphins see him as a cog to build around? Um, he has one year left on his deal. Do they want him to play it out? Do they give him extension? Do they try to trade him for a first-round pick um, and potentially use that to package up and get a quarterback? There's a lot of different options there. So I'm interested to see what they do with those two players. And then, you know, what do they do with, with veterans like Rashad Jones and TJ McDonald, who are both playing very similar positions? and making a lot of money. What do they do with Kiko Alonso? Um, who's also making a good bit of money, um, but may not... Well, they don't play Kiko Alonso because he's he's really bad. <laughs> they right. move on from Kiko Alonso. Right, right, right. You know, Danny Amendola is another decision. Josh Sid, you know, um, a lot of guys on this team that are veterans, that are, are win-now veterans, per se, um, that they, they, they may end up releasing, ultimately, uh, and playing the long game. So... I think that may end up opening more holes than they even have now. And then I think you see this team build one look for a quarterback, but if they can't find it in this draft, I think you see them build through the trenches at defensive and offensive line and, uh, you know, try to see if they can build, you know, build, build this team up with the big volleys up front first. Well, that's what makes this interesting with Chad O'Shea is that I think the biggest strength on offense with this group is the receiving core. Like, I think Devontae right. Parker is still just like, he seems like he's gone. Like, a new coaching staff uh-huh. and just, do you really want to, and I mean, this is going to be year four for him. And I, I wanted to talk myself into Devontae Parker over and over again. I liked him a lot coming out of Louisville and everything, but it just it just doesn't seem like it's ever always going to be there and he's someone you're ever going to be able to count on long term. Some of it was the foot stuff and the injuries, but it just seems like there's just... Something's never going to be right. But then you have Jakeem Grant, who was awesome last year. Albert Wilson, who before he get he goes down, was awesome. Um, 
And you have Danny Amendola, who obviously has a history with O'Shea. And then Kenny Stills, who just seems like someone who will be really good in that uh, Patriots kind of system. And then you have Laramie Tunsil, uh, who's just who's kind of gone under the radar as a really solid left tackle for them. And you're talking about Juwan James. And like he was a first-round pick for this team, uh, I think it was like yeah. five years ago. And yeah, to yeah, move on from him when yeah. so many teams are dying for – a stellar tackle play like just how much a bad offensive line or just a weak spot one of the tackle spots can torpedo your season you're gonna draft a quarterback in the first round and then you're gonna let your one of your first round picks and one of your staples on your offensive line walk and just roll the dice like that's part of the reason arizona was in the situation they were in was that offensive line was playing justin Pugh and um what is the dude from uh, uh cincinnati for years andre smith he was in yeah. there like it was just it was one of the worst offensive lines I've ever seen and it almost killed Josh Rosen and it's the re- probably the biggest reason Steve Wilkes got fired is because they couldn't protect and like just it was just awful so I don't really yeah. understand the idea of letting Jawan James walk even if it's going to be a little bit more expensive you pay a premium because even the Vikings the one year of great offensive line play they're in the NFC championship game they take a step back to the middle of the pack and then Kirk Cousins running for his life and everything else and they're a different team um it i that seems odd to me that they would go down that road and then on defense i think they just need corners like they need bodies like tj mcdonald and rashad jones whatever but like you have minka fitzpatrick you have xavian howard i would keep both um definitely keep minka fitzpatrick who was a huge win for them last year you invested already in middle linebacker raekwon mcmillan um wait cameron wake is just a um, freak of nature so until he tells you that it's over and that it's time to move on you keep that going robert quinn you keep your fingers crossed and you're just like how does this happening i he's good now so maybe this will continue i i don't know but then you have charles harris right behind him so maybe he'll he's a former first round pick and he can be a guy down the line but i think that's how i would approach this offseason if i was uh miami keep adding I would take a quarterback in the first round. I would keep adding offensive line help, and then I would uh, just add as many corners as possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the most interesting question for this offseason will be uh, whether the Dolphins decide to get their quarterback this year or do they you know, kick the can down the road and hope for one in 2020, um, that, which has been some of the, the rumors and talk you know, that they may go that route. So. You know, whether they fall in love with Kyler Murray or Dwayne Haskins, you know, they know that they probably have to trade up to get them. So that's going to involve, you know, some mortgage picks. Or do they, you know, do they, do they wait their time and say, hey, 2019 is essentially a throwaway year and we're, we're trying to get a guy in 2020 up high. So I think, you know, we're all going to hear, you know, stuff over the next couple of months. You know, we'll be in the combine next month and, or next week, actually, and see exactly – you know, what the thought process is. But, you know, once we see when they go get their franchise quarterback, you can kind of map out exactly how to build those pieces around it and get some of those, you know, those holes filled that you mentioned uh, to fix this team. Yeah, it should be interesting. But I love that Kyler and I, you you mentioned having to trade up. I don't think they'd have to tra- It's funny because it's like just how much of a difference a year makes. Because remember last year, Baker was the guy that Gase was like falling in love with yeah. and wanted to potentially trade up for, and they were just too far out of the top group to get one of the big four, right? Now, right. they're at a worse spot at 13, but uh, Kyler might be there. Like, Haskins won't be there, but this is a weaker quarterback class, and it seems like there's a possibility that Locke might be taken in front of him with Denver, and you look and you're like, 
oh, Miami might not have to do anything. And Kyler just might yeah. be there for them. Yeah, yeah, it, it'll be intriguing. And, I, you know, we've seen the mock drafts, Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay have both had Kyler at 13. It's a dolphin. So, you know, that'd be an extremely exciting pick. And, and, you know, depending on what the Dolphins think of Kyler, you know, it could be great. But, you know, I've sort of learned and seen in this 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 uh, this draft process, quarterbacks always rise, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the thought right as of now that, you know, your top two quarterbacks in the draft, which I believe are Haskins and, and Murray, are going to go top ten. You know, some way, somehow, whether it's a trade-up or, you know, a surprise team or whatnot, I think that somebody's going to go up there and get their guy. It's very rare, you know, in this area that you see quarterbacks fall to teams. You know, usually yeah. quarterbacks, are, people go get them. You know, we we saw Mahomes, saw Kansas City come out of nowhere to go, go up and get Mahomes. You know, Houston mm-hmm. came out of nowhere to go get Deshaun, Deshaun Watson. I think that Kyler Murray's that that quarterback that some team I tries to come out of nowhere and uh, and go and get. Well, that's who Kyler kind of feels like to me in the draft process. Wise is Deshaun Watson. We're we're kind of overthinking some of this, where it's just like what this dude can do. Where it just feels like he's never out of a game, and he's just mm-hmm. such a gamer, and he just played behind. Like, there's got to be something. I would love to get his thoughts on this. Of just like, what was it like going into every game? your college career just knowing you had to put up 56 to win like the amount right. of pressure yeah. <laughs> is on this guy every single week where it's like my defense is atrocious and i know no matter what i have to basically be perfect to give us a chance because of just how bad our defense is um i, I would just i always like that but um we also haven't seen a 5 180 quarterback go number one overall we haven't seen how teams are going to react yeah. to him like obviously they're changing a little bit because baker went number one and i don't think that yeah. would have happened 10 years ago but at the same time baker is still at like six three, two hundred and something yeah. like he's not small like baker just like kyler is significantly smaller than uh baker mayfield and we'll have to see what he can would do but if I'm a Miami fan, if this offseason ends with Flores, O'Shea, and this front office group with Tannenbaum out and Greer in, and um, they keep the wide receiving group in play, and you get a, and you don't re-sign Frank Gore, and you give Kenyon Drake the keys that he's needed for like a year and a half now, and you go into next year with Kyler, um, an okay offensive line, Kenyon Drake, Albert Wilson, Jakeem Grant, Kenny Stills, Amendola, that's fun. That sells tickets yeah. because that offense yeah. is going to be fun as hell. Yeah, yeah. Kyler Murray would be more fun than anything they've had at, at you know, on offense over the last decade. So you're right about that. Uh, that would definitely uh, accelerate, you know, some interest in the team and, and help ticket sales. And I, I think it could be good for the team. It's just whether Chris Greer and the front office, like you mentioned, can be, get behind a a quarterback that is, doesn't really check any of the size and, and measurement boxes that, that anybody has had really since football started, you know, and that's, that's something they have to get over if they want to build around him and make him the franchise quarterback. So I'm not sure exactly how they feel about that. Um, you know, I know that, like you mentioned, they, they really liked Baker Mayfield last year. I know they also liked Josh Allen last year. Um, but they passed on Lamar Jackson. They had an opportunity to get him, True. and yeah. you know that it just wasn't their guy. So you know, uh, some some would say that Kyler Murray is similar to Lamar Jackson. You know, uh, I would say he's a little better passer and a little smaller. Uh, mm-hmm. 
But, you know, that, that's going to be the question again. You know, can, I think the biggest question for me is not his height, it's more his weight. You know, can he last uh, weight-wise in the NFL? Can he take the hit? I, yeah. think, I think we've seen short quarterbacks, what you can do to get them to move the pocket. To do he has to be Russell Wilson. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the best size comparison for him is Michael Vick. You know, because yeah. Michael Vick was a slender guy like him. Uh, Russell's Russell's pretty stout. Like he, Russell might right. be two twenty, two twenty five. But well, it's just more right, of like avoiding there. the bad hits. Russell is just so right. good because he's been around a bad offensive line forever, and that was part of design. Is like they, we don't have to invest in our offensive line as much because Russell is so good at navigating and throwing on the run and not taking bad hits that it's okay if he has to play behind a bad offensive line. He can survive, and I wonder if that's the same thing with Kyler. Yeah, yeah, he was actually really good in the pocket. Uh, yeah, in Oklahoma, and people forget that because he has speed. Uh, but he was a really good pocket passer. Well, they made him. Did yeah. you see like Lincoln Riley just being like, "No, you're staying in the pocket, Kyler." Like they made yeah. him like learn how to do that. Yeah, it it helped out. It helped out. So I think you know he's gonna have to sell some teams. I think I would I would want to feel comfortable about his his leadership and his maturity level as far as you know some of the baseball stuff and. You know how committed you are to this and lead your team to where you want to go, uh, and make sure that he's you know polished in that realm because he is going to be the ambassador of your organization. And you know, although it was just one or two interviews, he didn't have a great pre-draft cycle. You know, when he had to deal with those questions about baseball and football, um, so I'd want some of that cleared up. But watching him on film, watching his playmaking ability, I don't overthink that thing. I think he's he's a guy that you want to go go get. I think that the last thing I'll say about the Dolphins, we can move on, is I just, if I'm Brian Flores and I want him to succeed, you have to take some sort of young quarterback. You just cannot risk it with a retread and going 1-15 in with a historically bad offense. We just yeah. we know too much now. You can't do it, man. Yeah. Like yeah. It sounds better in theory that we're going to build this the right way, but if that offense is god-awful next year and that defense is okay and they tear down a lot of that roster... <sighs> We've just seen this story too many times. Like it just if you have an opportunity at Kyler, you have to take a swing. You just have to take yeah. a swing at some of these guys because you just you think you have more time than you do, always. All right. Um there's another thing that is uh very interesting in the NFL that I want to get your insight into, and it's uh Antonio Brown, uh who is still a Pittsburgh Steeler as of this recording. Um first thing I want to ask you about this drama. Um, and the Wi-Fi connection issue between him and Ben Roethlisberger. Um, what do you make of his choices this this summer? Like we, I heard Greg Jennings talk about them getting lunch a couple weeks ago in their clothes, and uh, Jerry Rice and him talked, and he wants to be a 49er. Like he is all over the place, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the the thing that we've seen with AB that has, has been extremely rare, and I guess we've seen it a little bit more with the stars over the last few years, but. He is being completely an open book. Like, there's no filter on him. There's no, you know, uh, PR. You know, there's no, this is not the right thing to say. He's just saying whatever is on his mind. Uh, and people aren't really sure how to handle that, you know, especially for a player under contract, essentially telling his team that, hey, I'm out, you know, with two years left on his deal. Uh, you know, tweeting about your quarterback and, you know, essentially calling him out. This is just something we haven't heard of you know, and forever. So people are trying to figure out how to handle it. I just see a guy who wants out, you know, and I think that, you know, I always see things a little bit more uh, open because I see the player and the, the team side of things, whereas a lot of times we often get 
assume about the team side of things, but you know, we see teams trade and cut players all the time. I think right now we see a guy who's trying to use his platform uh, to, to express as colorfully as he can that, hey, uh, I'm done with Pittsburgh. So I, I just don't see any way that Pittsburgh can, can put this back into the put this back into the box and put a bow on it and say, hey, we're going to patch these things up and go through it next year. I think you've got to trade Antonio Brown um, this offseason and get what you can from him and move forward with you two as the, the center point of your you know, your offense with the rest of uh, Ben's time. I just think that that that, that relationship is inspired. Um, it's just going to do you more harm than good to try to bring it back. Can I tell you what I would do if I'm Pittsburgh? Yeah. Right. I don't trade Antonio Brown under any circumstance. Like, I'm okay. still – I think he's so all over the place. What that tells me is he doesn't know what he wants. And if you read Jeremy Fowler's piece on ESPN.com about this from about a week ago, there is so many interesting nuggets that no one's talking about, which makes me think that this is a salvageable situation. And you can tell me if you agree with this, because I, I think ultimately I think it might be overblown and it might come down to just a lot of stuff there has been kind of publicly thrown out there. And it's just a lot of airing of dirty laundry and all that kind of stuff. But like, I also think about just what the Patriots have gone through in the last two years. Like, they didn't end up moving on from Brady and Belichick. It, that's come to a head. Like, they almost traded Gronkowski. They shopped them to the Lions and stuff last year. They just won the Super right. Bowl. Like, they've gone through all kinds of just back, like just insane backstabbing and weird Alex Guerrero stuff. And just, like, there were all kinds of reasons to move on and to make serious changes to that group. But they ultimately didn't because guess what? Like they're all really good when they're all on the field together. They're just a really good team. And this is still a business and you don't have to love who you work with. You just have to kind of respect them. And it seems like he hasn't lost the respect of anybody. Him and Ben aren't even that, like they don't really hate each other by all accounts, according to the Steelers locker room people. Like, so yeah. this is what Fowler said. The man affectionately known as AB was, and in many ways still is, beloved in the Steelers locker room. This is from a week ago. The former sixth round pick was good to teammates sharing massage therapy with young players or hitting the trendy South side area of Pittsburgh for fun with his receiver group. Everybody could cling to him, said Chris Hubbard, a Steelers offensive lineman from 2013 to 2017 before signing with the Cleveland Browns last offseason. And he was cool with everybody. People in that locker room love a B. I just yeah. don't see how like people are going to be like, oh, how do you bring AB back? And the, they all like him. The players don't give a shit about any of this. I think they're all okay with AB voicing his frustrations because he has. It just seems like since he got to Pittsburgh and became a star, this is part of the experience. He comes in late on a Wednesday. He may miss a Saturday walkthrough. He just always kind of pushes his limit. And Tomlin has accepted that from the get go. It sounds like because he's like. He's the best receiver in football. This is part of the deal. We're still going to do our job. And I know on Sundays, I can count on him because ultimately, that's all it comes down to is unless he's going to be a detriment to you winning on Sundays, you live with it. Like some people are more difficult to work with than others, but you still recognize as long as he is an elite guy, you keep him in the room. Yeah, I, I get that argument. Um, and I can see a lot of validity to it. I think from my perspective, there are a few different things in this situation. You mentioned New England and, and them being able to fix this thing. Um, I think the common denominator there is that, is that they've won and that they've continued to win at the highest level even now. Um, I think the Pittsburgh Steelers have run into a situation, particularly over the last you know 
five, six years where they progressively got worse, even with their best talent, AB, on the field. And their product is declining. Their quarterback is at the end of the, you know, end. I was going to say, I don't know if it's AB declining. I think it's their quarterback declining and them I, just doing the, I, them botching the Le'Veon Bell stuff. Right, right. And I think a lot of that, you look at the situation, and I think AB's mentioned that he's felt like the scapegoat for a lot of this. And yeah. I think ultimately the, the Steelers may have to choose, you know, Big Ben, Big Ben or AB. You know, and I know there's a lot of, you know, like you said, they may not hate each other, but a lot of the stuff that's been said this offseason, I know that. You know, particularly in the last few days, you know, AB has liked it and mentioned tweets involving, you know, uh, oh, yeah. Roethlisberger's sexual assault charge. Yeah. A lot of that stuff, man, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I think he's just that. being a dick. You know, I think that's just um, who he is. That's just I, him being, yeah. I, I, I don't know. But I feel like you, this is who he's yeah. always been. Yeah, but I, especially starting quarterbacks, you know, and, and all, I, I think Ben obviously deserves some blame for a lot of this situation. But he's I think talked about him negatively how... on the radio, right? Like he's right, gone. That's right. something that AB never liked. Is AB didn't do that? Like keeping it in house, wait for a film, and and uh, Roethlisberger would talk about it on the radio a lot about AB messing up. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a lot that Ben Ben did wrong in this situation. Uh, but I think you look at the entire situation as a whole. You mentioned a lot of things that Mike Tomlin let AB get away with for it, get away with over the cycle. I think you just look at everybody else in the locker room. And if you welcome AB back after everything that's going on, after everything that's been said and everything that's been done, and you know some of the things he did late in the last season, you really create a a standard, a, a staple that hey, you know you you can get away with certain things depending on who you are. And that I think it's okay. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think I think that you create that standard, and you know you you lose your team, um, particularly from Mike Tomlin's perspective. Because, you know, all that has been public with AB, you see young guys on the team and they're going to look at that and that's going to be something that they believe they can do in three or four years. Well, uh, if you're as good I, as, if you're going to be a future Hall of Famer, first ballot Hall of Famer, then yeah, you can do what AB does. I think that's the president he said, where he's like, because he find, I believe in that story, Eli Rogers, who they refer to as uh, little AB. Um, not great if you're Eli Rogers because um, you're not as good as Antonio Brown. So maybe don't uh, try and shadow and be Antonio Brown 2.0 because he doesn't get fined apparently and uh, Rogers does. But I think that just goes back to the business thing where it's like Tomlin's always been a player's first coach. This is part of the deal. It's like he's going to give more leeway to his stars. And I don't think that's a negative because it seems like if it was a huge negative, the locker room would hate AB and dislike Tomlin. But I think the locker room right. all likes Mike Tomlin and they all like AB. So I just feel like we're all just like it, it's just a long offseason and they had a bad year. They missed the playoffs. Tomlin benched him in the last week of the season. But like the dirty little seeker has been missed a lot of throws last year. The, if you look at his PFF yeah. numbers from the season, that's the reason the Steelers missed the playoffs this year is because Ben Roethlisberger regressed. That offensive line is still great. Um, you still look, I mean, losing Mike Munchak this offseason is a huge issue that I think we'll have to see what happens there. Losing Ryan Shazier, 
he was so critical to that defense and their identity and everything that just not having him around it it sucks it's like the eric berry thing where it's just you can tell that their the heart and soul of that defense was missing and it's just keith butler is not exactly the defensive whiz who was like wondering how he was going to cover who was it like uh, the the tight end for the chargers who'd been out all year and it was like uh, uh, Henry, t- yeah. yeah and he was like looking for him i, I believe he mentioned him by name yeah, and they're like yeah, uh yeah. he's out my guy um but i i just I think there's just too much talent there. What are you going to do? Like in the last year of Ben Roethlisberger, potentially you're going to have him without AB and just, I mean, rely on Juju Smith-Schuster and uh, James Conner. Like that's really what you're going to do? Like what a waste. There's not a better alternative. You're not going to get great value for Antonio Brown. His value is probably the lowest it's been just because of all this drama. I would would call his bluff, man. I'd be like, we'll see if you don't come. He'll be back. Right. My only worry with that is, different situations but we saw last year the Steelers call Le'Veon Bell's bluff and it blew up in their face um and I would say that Antonio Brown's an even more expressive personality than Le'Veon Bell um you take a huge risk if you're saying hey we're just gonna hope that this thing patches up and everything's gonna be all right and you're under contract and reported play um because you you could you could one have a guy not show up at all like Le'Veon did, and now you now you have no value because your star receiver's not showing up, and you don't trade him. Or two, you have a guy who's just complete malcontent when he shows up that he causes more damage than good. And I think that what we've seen from Antonio Brown, that's not out of the question that he ends up just being chaotic if he does end up coming. So we haven't I seen that yet, right? Like he still performs I, on game day. Like he's still someone like on game day they can count on. It's not like he is sabotaging the team or anything. Like that's why I think like if you pulled that locker room, I I'm willing to bet Le'Veon Bell is ostracized and no one is a fan, especially not the linemen um, in that group. I feel like they generally like they raided his locker after like all that. Right. Like, I just feel like they are out on Le'Veon Bell. Like whatever Antonio Brown's annoying antics are where he just get, lets all of his Jimmy Butler isms out every week. Right. Like they live with it because he's showing up on Sunday and still balling out every single week. And I think they respect right. the hundred catches, 1500 yards. Like, they know what they're getting and that he's going to help them win a Super Bowl. Le'Veon Bell left them for just a, a petty reason, and they feel like their guy just moved on and left them out to dry and kind of wasted a Super Bowl contending team this year. Yeah, I, I, but I think that he, him leaving is a reason why they turned on him. But like I said, what's the what's the confidence level that a if that AB says that it doesn't say hey I, I'm good I'm good I'm not reporting and doesn't show up like I, if he said he's out and until so there's something that changes I, I'm gonna take him at his word that he feels like he's done as a stealer you know so but we saw I, that with I, Earl I, Thomas too right where he said he wanted out he flicked off his own team as he got carted right. off but he still was playing right. at an elite level for the Seahawks when he got hurt yeah he did yeah, he I wanted to get traded he openly wanted to be a cowboy they kept him. Right. They're like, nope, sorry, Earl. You're still really good for us. We're keeping you. And he still played his ass off for them before he got injured. Right. But he did He did hold out throughout yeah. some of the regular season as well. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I think there's there's definitely risk. But I, I agree that, you know, they're probably a, they're a better team with AB. Um, so you do everything you can to try to repair that. I saw that Art Rooney's supposed to be trying to meet with AB this week after AB initially said that he didn't want to meet with him. Um, yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll see exactly what comes out of that. 
um, whether it's a finality with, hey, we've got to move on, or maybe there's some mended fences. Um, there's there's a lot of drama in Pittsburgh, you know, over the last few years. So uh, I'd be actually be eager to to hear our Rooney's honest perspective on what he thinks about all of this. It's just sort yeah. of the is he okay with that? You know, he's a real family guy. They they haven't really had this sort of you know drama until the last few years. So I'm not sure if he's okay with it as long as they're winning and competitive, or if this is something you know that that really bothers him. Uh, you know, the, there's a there's a lot a lot going on here, um, and you know the, the Steelers are essentially at a crossroad because if they don't get it, you know, get a ring or be competitive next year or two, they might have to go into a cycle where they have to start rebuilding because this yeah. is a team with a lot of older veterans, a lot of win now sure. veterans. You know, that offensive line is getting really old. Um, this could be a team that you know if they don't get it in the next year really. Um, they, they fall on the wayside and now they're looking up at the Browns and, and Ravens competing for this division every year, you know? Yeah. I mean, the Browns are basically here now. The Ravens is uh, they're They're coming and they're orchestrating their offense more for Lamar Jackson with Greg Roman running things. And uh, I, I'm not a believer in the Bengals. Got to say uh, they, they don't yeah. have a DC yet. Uh, not going well with Zach Taylor right. um, so far. We'll, we'll have to see, but uh, I would not bet on, that situation for me but that's the other reason is like you're in win now mode like you've you know how good this team is when they have their main guys there and um i don't know this might be a, a bold take but uh i might pay Le'Veon bell and then uh not trade uh, antonio brown and then you're ready for the last thing for kevin colbert draft will greer from west virginia a lot of pittsburgh <laughs> yeah. fans in west virginia take him late in the first round there you go you solved everything right. i just solved the pittsburgh sealers next five years that might not be a bad idea, although I don't know if Le'Veon Bell would take take fifty million from the Steelers at this point. <laughs> I think he's in for a rude awakening. I don't know who's backing up the Brinks truck for him. Yeah, it'll be intriguing. I I'm I'm right there with you. I think yeah. it might be an MLB Machado Harper type deal for him this summer where I think there's a real chance he just goes unsigned and it's like week four and he just finally caves with somebody like i don't think anyone's going to be giving him what he's uh, uh what he wants especially after just missing a full year like he just missed a year we just like how insane is that we just wasted a yeah. Le'Veon bell prime year for just uh, god it sucks because i love watching that dude play and james connor was fun and everything but like Le'Veon bell man was just it just sucks like the Steelers situation sucks because they were supposed to compete and it would have been fun to see them in the top of the AFC playoff chase this year, especially with Mahomes and seeing that offense versus the Chiefs offense and the Pats and the Chargers and everything. They just should have been up there. And it just feels like all this could have been avoided if everybody just kind of <sighs> sat down in a room. You're like, we're not leaving. You're like locking Colbert, uh, Le'Veon's agent, uh, Antonio Brown, Ben, everybody in a room. And you're like, until this is all resolved, we are n- you're not getting out. That's I don't know if that's legal, but that's what I would have done if I'm Art Rooney. Yeah, yeah. I mean, intriguing. Um, Antonio Brown, the last thing, and we'll move on. Uh, Gotta say, the fact that the Arizona Cardinals are the betting odds favorite right now is insane to me. Like, the like the 49ers, I love, like, just the historical parallels between him and Jerry Rice and all that kind of stuff, and him just going into Shanahan's offense with Jimmy Garoppolo and that group. Like, whew, that would that would be fun. I'm in for it, but... Arizona makes no sense to me at all. A team that's just 
I mean, I guess you want to do a year of Fitz and Antonio Brown, and it's going to sell tickets after the kind of season they had. And Josh Rosen needs all the help that he can get, but I, they're not a receiver away. Like by the time that team has enough pieces to really contend again, like I think Antonio Brown would be like 36, 37 years old, and it, his prime will have been gone at that point. I, I don't really understand that 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 at all. Yeah, yeah, I don't see that. I think he's. I think he goes out in the bay if they trade up one of those two teams. Yeah. yeah. Last thing, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up here. Um, something that I'm a gigantic Cam Newton guy, and what happened this past year was rough and just kind of insane that he was playing through it because in we're just getting smarter and smarter about player safety, and Cam Newton's out there playing quarterback when he can't throw the ball downfield, like literally cannot do it. So he was just if you look at his next gen stats from later in the season, he wasn't going 20 yards or more like he he physically couldn't do it. And there was a quote that scared even me and it scared Cam is he said at this per, uh, uh, at this persona that we play, you can't show no signs of weakness, Newton said. But I was weak, and I felt so vulnerable. I felt so scared. I felt so afraid because I know I wasn't myself. I didn't know what was wrong with my shoulder. I just knew that it hurt. And I knew there was an issue. I couldn't throw the ball further than 30 yards. No lie. So I was trying to keep up with it as much as possible until the wheels fell off. They lost like six straight to end the season, by the way. I felt like defenses were exposing me because they knew I couldn't throw the ball downfield. Not being in the position physically to be able to make the throws that you know you're capable of making, that was the most disheartening thing of the whole year. Why was this guy playing quarterback? I, I cannot yeah. believe he was allowed to play quarterback with these kind of quotes. Like, he was clearly, like, not even in the middle space to do anymore, knowing he couldn't throw. But, like, were they trying to end his career? I, I don't understand why he was playing. Yeah, somebody's got to be the, the 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 smart mind there. And I'm not leaving after this, uh, this back and forth. But, you know, I think, Cam, you look at that situation, and a lot of times with quarterback, uh, Somebody's got to be the, the bigger voice. And, you know, whether it's the head coach, whether it's the general manager playing the bad guy, uh, whether it's the office coordinator, somebody's got to come in and say, hey, we need to sit up. And I know it's tough in this league where we talked about it, where every year it seems like the coach is fighting for his gig. But like your franchise quarterback is, is your franchise quarterback. So I, I think that, you know, they did him a disjustice, uh, injustice. I continue to play him. Um, you know, I know he had surgery this off season. You, you hope that it's everything's fixed, but saw what happened with Andrew Luck, and that always scares quarterbacks. I'm sure, you know, anything involving your throwing shoulder is a, is a risk to your career, not only the season. So I, I think that you know, they so Panthers are lucky that you know it didn't get worse. I don't think it got worse uh, from from you know playing through it. Uh, but you know that that franchise can't afford to lose Cam Newton. He is the Carolina Panthers at this point. So I think that this offseason is going to be really intriguing on how they play it. I hope, you know, for his sake, they slow play it and, you know, they don't worry about OTAs or even training camp if he's still recovering. Um, you know, they've got to get somebody in that room, actually. But, you know, it's been two years, you know, so I'm not holding my breath, but I think Colin Kaepernick will be fit for Carolina. Uh, yeah. Given that he's a very similar skill set to Cam and he's able allow Cam to sort of be eased into the rotation and they've already signed here. True. Be less in, in that market. Uh, but at this point, like I said, I'm not holding my breath for that. But anyway, I think that Cam, you know, needs uh, an off season, a true off season 
to, to lay off his arm and to be able to, you know, rest and get things together. Um, you know, cause this, this guy's still an athletic freak. He's still a, a relatively young quarterback who should have, you know, at least a half a decade of good football ahead of him. Uh, but that arm playing with that arm is dangerous. And, you know, you don't want to get in a situation where his career is stunned because of, you know, trying to play through, you know, something that needed time to rest. Yeah. I mean, he carried that team. Like, they had no receivers. He lost Greg Olson again a year and a half ago when they went in the playoffs and they lost in the Saints in the first round. Like, that team was all Cam all the time. Like, he was carrying that group. And he carried him to, I think they were like 11 and five that year. And they were six and two before his shoulder just basically gave out and they kept playing him. And they had Kyle Allen backing up and this other guy who sucked even worse than Kyle Allen. But, um, I, I, I'm just so fascinated by what they do this off season. Cause I think they're a sneaky team that might take quarterback in the first round. That's how we'll know how they feel about Cam Newton's shoulder going forward. Or if they like sign, like you said, Kaepernick, or I think something that's even more likely maybe is like Teddy Bridgewater. Like what if mm-hmm. they did that and they just promised him like at least half the season because Cam's just not going to be ready. And that gives him more time to play because I don't know if he's going to get a starting opportunity anywhere in the NFL um, this year. So maybe that's the play. I, I could see that as well. I just I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this um, front office handles Cam stuff. And I just feel like with the fact that him playing down the stretch hurt like he was that there's a lot of misinformation out there and that we really don't know the severity of what's going on with Cam until like they address the quarterback situation this summer. Right. All right, man. Cameron, this has been great. Um, is there anything we need to check out uh, this week on ESPN.com that, uh, that you wrote? Uh, well, I'll have more content on, on uh, you know, the, the Chad O'Shea, Jim Caldwell connection this week. Um, I'll probably have a little bit more on the quarterback situation over the next couple of weeks. So check that out on ESPN.com and everything I'll have will be uh, at Cameron Wolf on, on Twitter or on my Facebook page by Cameron Wolf. All right, Cameron, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. This was this was great. All right. Thanks, man. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second and leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.